Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. We have two guests this week, Drs. William Chung and Kelvin Wong, and we're talking about shared equity and limited equity homeownership programs in the US, UK, Australia, Hong Kong, mainland China, and Norway. Specifically, we're looking at William and Kelvin's work on the concepts of entry affordability and exit affordability. Shared or limited equity ownership programs provide financial resources to help people buy homes, and as such, they focus on entry affordability. They're about getting people onto the first rung of the homeownership ladder. As we usually envision it, the next step on that ladder is out of government-supported housing and into privately owned, unsubsidized housing. But shared equity programs often expect participants to pay back the money that they got to help buy the home, or they have to sell the home to someone else at a reduced below market price. So that means they have lower exit affordability, and a lot of people who buy homes through shared equity programs can't build up enough equity to buy another home on the private market without support. They end up stuck in place or back on the rental market. As we discussed, there's no easy solution to this problem. Most people haven't even thought far enough into the future of shared equity programs to realize there might be a problem. We're doing that today, and there are a lot of really interesting angles to consider. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, with production support from Claudia Bustamante and Jason Suteja. As always, feedback and show ideas can go to me at shanephillips at ucla.edu. If you love the show, please give us a five-star rating, a review, or tell a friend about it. Now let's get to our conversation with Dr. Chung and Dr. Wong. Kelvin S.K. Wong is professor and head of the Department of Real Estate and Construction at Hong Kong University, and Dr. William K.S. Cheng is a senior lecturer in property at the University of Auckland Business School. They're old friends and co-authors, so I'm very excited that they're joining us today to talk about shared equity and limited equity homeownership programs from a comparative international perspective, including the U.S. Kelvin and William, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yes, thanks. Hello, everyone. I'm. Don't worry. Our regular host Shane Phillips is here as well. How's it going, Shane? <laughs> hey, Pavo. You're in good hands for this podcast. Um, so, Kelvin and William, we start each of our interviews by asking our guests for a tour in a city they know well, or just a visit to their favorite spot, um, whether that's their current home, town, uh, or somewhere else. So maybe just take a few minutes. You know, I, I was hoping Kelvin could mention Hong Kong and William could mention something about Auckland. Can you just tell us uh, where you would like to take? your friends or colleagues when they visit. William, would you like to start? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can start first. Well, after my graduation from Hong Kong U, I decided to move here in New Zealand to start my career. And now I'm based in Auckland. That's why I'm talking about this most livable city around the world. I think mm -hmm. it ran to be the most livable city recently on media. Mm -hmm. um, apart from Hong Kong and also LA, uh, Auckland is one of the my most most favorite cities that I I so far live in, and if you come here to visit me, I can definitely organize some road trip to travel the cities, and it should be a very memorable experience. Uh, when people talking about New Zealand, you you know they will quite focus on the South Island. Uh, mm -hmm. You will have uh, the Aurora or the glacier to, to visit, but uh, what a pity that I may not be able to manage myself to visit South Island because of COVID. That's why I mm. still haven't had a chance to go there. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, before COVID, actually, Kelvin come to join a Pacific Rim Region Conference, a regional conference in, in here in Auckland, and we managed to have a road trip to Lake Taupo which is a southern part of Auckland. And that is a very famous natural hot spring area. Nice. You can enjoy the hot spring there. That, that's really fantastic view uh, with the hot spring. And you can have your dinner, even you are having your hot spring. <laughs> that, that's a really, really good place to go. And also uh, in that area, you can also go to visit the Waitomo Gloomworm uh, Cave. You can mm. see the, the, the fire fights. Uh, okay. You can see all these is really a stunning view uh, with a trip to that uh, cave. Yeah, that's some 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 place I would recommend. Can I just jump in and say uh, I've never been to Australia or New Zealand, and we we were actually scheduling another interview with someone from uh, Auckland coming up next year, 
And in my head, New Zealand was always like right off the coast of Australia, um, <laughs> but it's like 1,400 miles away and it's only three hours behind Los Angeles. This was just shocking to me. Yeah. So yeah. nothing, nothing, not a question Plus or anything. Also, just, just also Williams, Williams talking to <laughs> us from the future. <laughs> yes, 21 hours ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. All right, Calvin, how about you? Right. So if I have to uh, bring my guests uh, to uh, somewhere, you know, originally I would like to say, you know, Los Angeles. <laughs> but now because, you know, Pavel asked me to say about, you know, something about Hong Kong. And also Hong Kong is the place I grew up and, you know, emotionally attached to. So, so I would definitely say, you know, Hong Kong. But I also understand, you know, here, you know, we have a lot of, uh, you know, California, U.S. audience. So I, I would like to say, you know, maybe you have come to Hong Kong or maybe you didn't. But it is actually a very small but uh, densely populated city uh, with a unique mix of Western and Chinese culture. So this is uh, what I really like a lot. And, and actually, we can make a very good you know, comparison with Los Angeles. Uh, like, you know, you have uh, Hollywood. And in Hong Kong, we also have some of the best uh, movie stars in the world, you know, particularly in the, in, in, in the field of Kung Fu, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, like UCLA, right? We also have some of the best universities in the world. So, and, you know, maybe next to LA, you know, you have another entertainment center, uh, Las Vegas. And very similar to Hong Kong, right? We Next to us, you know, just uh, one hour away by ferry, we have Macau, which is another ah, casino yeah. and entertainment, you know, center. So, so that would mean actually in, in, in a certain sense, you know, LA, Hong Kong are quite alike. And then, you know, because of all the great features, you know, we commonly have, it is not too difficult to imagine that, you know, people like to come and live, you know, either in LA or in Hong Kong, but that inevitably also creates some problem. Like, you know, the topic we are talking about today is housing affordability. Mm-hmm. It's too nice. <laughs> that is a great transition. Uh, The paper we're talking about was published in 2019 in the International Journal of Housing Markets, and it's titled Entry and Exit Affordability of Shared Equity Homeownership and International Comparison. This is our first time talking about these kinds of programs, so this interview will function as both an overview of what these programs do and a discussion of the specific challenges with them that you're identifying and, and working with in your research article. We can start with what shared or limited equity homeownership means, and I think the frames of entry and exit affordability are actually really useful for explaining the purpose of these programs. On the entry side, the goal or a goal of these programs is to get people into homeownership to help them build wealth and improve their housing security, because as we all know, renting doesn't usually afford those same benefits. But buying a home often requires a big down payment, and people can't always pull that together without assistance. So these programs exist to provide resources in some way or another that reduce the buyer's personal upfront costs. We'll hold off on discussing specific programs or countries for now, except maybe as an illustrative example. But tell us, uh, either Kelvin or William, at a high level, how shared equity programs generally handle that initial support and what strings are often attached to it? Well, indeed, if you try to imagine yourself, you would like to buy the first home, but you only have a small amount of deposit. One option you could try to do is with the support of share equity partner. Well, basically, share equity arrangement can try to split the cost of financing home purchase into three parts, uh, including your down payment, of course, and then your home loan from a bank. And then if your upfront cost is not enough to pay the down payment, then you need someone called equity share partner. Mm-hmm. Well, that equity partner basically will support you to finance your home purchase upfront. And the share equity partner could be anyone, uh, even your parents. <laughs> in New Zealand, we, we, we say uh, we have a lot of media discussion on the bank of mom and dad. They also try to become the fifth biggest lender in this country, around 22 billion New Zealand dollars being involved in that man and dad bank. Wow. Well, of course, our paper is not focusing on this uh, bank of mom and dad, of course. Uh, we are more focusing on the government or any institution that helps to take the role, providing that share equity partner. 
uh, that means in the upfront, the government can try to uh, support the down payment. Well, for instance, the Hong Kong HOS scheme, the Home Ownership Scheme, is an example. Well, basically, Hong Kong government tried to build the houses and sell at an initial price discount. Well, like many other subsidy program, it usually have some 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 constraint uh, of that kind of share equity arrangement. Maybe your home uh, need to be sell after a certain period of time, and also you need to sell to some uh, someone eligible to meet some annual income threshold. That is to ensure the household could assess the, the housing or subsidized housing in society as a whole. That's basically how the share equity function. That's that's super interesting, and I think it's important to distinguish between, you know, the shared equity mortgage or some kind of financial participation, because I think a lot of times when people think about these kinds of programs, they're associated with with the building type or a building stock itself, right? So usually the program is like a publicly built condo that's sold to people with a shared equity relationship, but it doesn't have to be. You could just have the government going in and helping people make their first down payment and then getting some equity at the end if they ever sell it, right? Yeah, that's true. And just in order to respond to Pavel's uh, question on uh, share equity mortgages, I think that that may be more popular in in the U.S. and people are more familiar with that. Mm -hmm. So if if I understand it correctly, I think there is also uh, one distinction between you know the, the share equity ownership and share equity mortgages hmm. so I, I think uh, I, I, William was uh, right you know it, it could be anyone who could you know contribute you know the equity part of the, of the down payment I think that that's fine it could be the government it could be the bank but I think you know if it is the bank then you know banking is itself a business right it is not a charity it is it is not uh, something that they want to help the poor but they have to make a profit mm-hmm. so that that would mean you know um, the incentive of bank providing uh, share equity mortgages would be quite different from you know what the government would do for share equity ownership so let's say you know with the lesson from the subprime crisis you know subprime mortgage crisis back in 2008 I believe now banks generally do not like to take too much real estate risk. <laughs> that is not their core business anyway. And, and, and the problem is real estate risk normally increases with housing price. Mm-hmm. Right. And also affordability problem is more severe when housing price is high. <laughs> so mm-hmm. then you can imagine, right, when, when the price is high, actually the bank, you know, now they are more conservative. They they try not to do so much, you know, kind of you know mortgages, especially the you know share equity one. Because if they do that, they will take on a lot of risk. Mm-hmm. So that, that would mean, you know, when we get to a situation with very severe affordability issues, yes, the bank can provide equity, but they may not be very willing to do so, you know, unless, mm-hmm. you know, they have, uh, they can get, get a very high interest, they can, you know, have a very good, you know, share equity ratio. Otherwise, you know, they, they, people, normal people, you know, when they have to get finance, I guess, you know, at the end of the day, they still have to go to the government, right? right. In, in that sense. So that, that would make another, you know, distinction in terms of the background of these two types of uh, similar, you know, kind of uh, products. Yeah, that's helpful. So the government, we're moving past entry affordability. The government has helped you buy a home, which clearly improves the entry side. But there's also an exit side. And for this, the goal of an exit means that people who participate in the program will eventually move from this subsidized housing situation into the private unsubsidized market. Part of the thinking there is that it's good for people to be more self-reliant and fully own their homes rather than sharing part of it with the government effectively. Not to mention that it's just simpler and cleaner for them to own it, you know, outright. But it's also beneficial because if the homeowners move into the private market and repay their subsidies, then that money can be turned around, reinvested to help someone else make the same journey from renting to subsidized homeownership to private ownership. But paying back that government support means you have less equity to afford a new home without subsidies, so exit affordability can be a real problem. Basically, selling your home may give you enough cash to pay back the government or whoever gave you that initial support, but not enough so that what's left after repayment can buy you a home on the private market. And that means you're either not going to sell and you're effectively kind of stuck in your home, um, even if you know your living situation, your job has changed, or you sell and you might end up living in lower quality home or less well-located homes you know, at the, at the suburban fringe or something. 
or you're back to renting, you know, albeit with more wealth than you'd have had otherwise. Is there anything you want to add to that about this dilemma or the trade-offs that homeowners and the people who run these programs are trying to balance? Maybe I try to use, as I said, Hong Kong is one of the example using the share equity affordable housing home ownership. And that is a great case study to understand how this share equity arrangement having that trade-off. Well, under the home ownership scheme, HOS, uh, implemented by Hong Kong government, uh, they try to sell the new built unit to some eligible public housing tenant and with uh, some eligibility requirement. At a very generous discount price, usually around 30 to up to 50% of the market rate, uh, that discount Mm. for a comparable unit in the private sector. That is the the benefit of having this program helping someone who can really get access to the home ownership. Of course, that it's subject to some resale restriction. At least you need to resell it after like five to 10 years once you live in that unit. That's why that will somehow restrict how you decide or make your decision to move elsewhere. Well, in general, you you can imagine in in Hong Kong, we have a very prolonged upward trend of property price increase in market. And Mm -hmm. suppose a lot of homeowners, they can get enough capital gain to move. But in the data that available to us so far, it indicates an extremely inactive resales market in, in those subsidized housing. Only around 1% of total subsidized housing stock being traded in, in that sector, while you can compare with 9% usually in the private sector. Mm, wow, mm, well, that's a big difference. You, you can, yeah, a big difference. And you can see why even Kelvin and I try to ask why so many subsidized units are not being transacted. They remain frozen uh, in that sector. Well, in other piece of our research, we try to advocate uh, or put forward an argument that in terms of those share equity model, if you need to repay those uh, down payment back to government in proportion, parata to the capital gain uh, over a period of time, well, they are not really affordable to purchase a private housing unit in, in the private housing sector. That's why you may not be able to make an optimal moving decision making. Uh, with that repayment. That's why it will create a lot of misallocation as we named in another piece of work, try try to study that misallocation of resources among this subsidized home unit. Can I clarify, you said there's often a, a sale requirement within five or 10 years? Like, I think I think you meant you, you can't sell it before within the first oh, five okay. to 10 years. You're restricted years. from selling it within a certain yeah, amount of exactly. time. But you're not forced to sell it. That was... No, that yeah. Seemed... I mean, that's that's the whole thing. Nobody's selling them. <laughs> For one, that seems really harsh. And also, yeah, it doesn't square with the fact that so few of these homes are being right. uh, traded in any given year. Okay. Well, and I, I think helpful. it's... I mean, it's, it's such a fascinating conundrum because if you think from the government's perspective, you know, one question that I asked myself was, why don't they just give people a bunch of money to purchase a house on the private market, Right. And from the government's perspective, they don't want, you know, the idea of the shared equity is when somebody sells that unit, their government's going to get some of the money back and they can put it back into building more of these or they can put it into the public rental sector or do something else with it. However, if nobody's selling them, they're still not getting that money back. So effectively, they're giving people a big one time subsidy, but just the kind of subsidy that keeps them trapped in the same unit for a long time. Is that a correct... (laughs) <laughs> summary of the of the problem i think it is i think you you nicely summarize the, the, the key problem of this uh, share equity model right people normally you know for example in california you have mentioned about you know the the, the social housing bill so mm-hmm. maybe people are now you know very actively discussing oh how should we should you know help the you know the, the, the lower income it. people to get home ownership but normally they don't think you know ahead so maybe after they gain their own home ownership for ten years fifteen years and what happened after that so you know do they do 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 the policy objective want them to stay there forever or or do they you know do we want these people to move out you know to better places mm-hmm. I think that that is something maybe you know at the policy making level you know people need to think more about right and have you been able to track the sales with different market cycles yet because you could imagine maybe it would have you know in a down market things might move differently in the HOS side of things compared to private 
housing? Yes, I think we we, we did. I think in our data set, uh, we cover you know uh, maybe down and up cycles uh, of mm-hmm. the housing market. Uh, so what uh, William mentioned, one percent, nine percent is uh, just an average situation. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, in different market cycle, you know, the the, the, the two uh, turnover rate could be different. But I think on average, I think it, as as you know, Shan mentioned, it is a huge gap. Yeah. So the the purpose of this study was to compare the entry affordability and exit affordability of shared equity ownership programs, and and do so in different countries. And the first step of that is just deciding which programs are going to qualify to go into this study. Could you talk about the the three criteria you use to decide which programs would be studied and which kinds of programs in the U.S. actually met those criteria? Yeah, these three three selection criteria include first one is the program should have an initial lump sum uh, subsidy for the homeowner, potential homeowner to buy that property uh, as a share equity partner concept that we mentioned. The second criteria is the program will involve some contractual arrangement uh, with the predetermined price formula, how to preserve the affordability for future home buyer. Uh, What I mean is, as I said, there will be some resale restriction period, and also you need to sell it to some eligible uh, income home buyer. That is something you need to to consider in that kind of share equity arrangement program. The final criteria that we try to set in that paper is we need to have a clear policy objective from from that kind of program that is helping some low-income family try to how to progress in the housing ladder. As Chen just mentioned, we need to move from the subsidized housing market to private housing market. That is an important criteria to enable that share equity homeowner to find an affordable exit to that program. That's why in in that paper, you will see we didn't include Singapore because Singapore home ownership program basically not really intend to establish the housing ladder. Uh, The government Mm. didn't intend really those homeowners to go into the private housing market. Over 80% of the population basically living in those public housing sectors. Right. There's, there's not much private market to go into. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that's, uh, that's the three main criteria we set out in our paper to select those countries to compare uh, their affordability. So there are three types of programs in the US that you identify that meet these criteria, community land trusts, limited equity cooperatives, and resale restricted owner-occupied housing. I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on this. I, I guess I do want to add, though, that I think another thing that qualifies is down payment assistance programs that, for example, the city of San Francisco has. I believe the state of California actually is doing this as well. My understanding of how it works in San Francisco is basically they will allow a buyer to put down as little as something like 3% of the purchase price and the city will cover the other you know, 17 or whatever it is. And if that 17% down payment accounts for you know, 15% of the purchase price or so, then the city is going to take back 15% of the appreciation plus the initial amount when the homeowner sells. And so this is another, like certainly they're sharing in the equity. And the one other thing I'll add is there are private companies actually that are doing this as well, mm-hmm. not necessarily banks, but maybe kind of more uh, venture capital funded or whatever. <laughs> but the terms, of course, are not nearly as generous because they have to account for the risk that the property value goes down. Um, they also just need to make a profit. And so in those cases, it might be more like, you know, they're giving you 17 or 20% for a down payment, but they're taking half the appreciation or 70% of the appreciation. It still can be a great deal for a buyer if they otherwise can't afford to buy. But those are just some examples. Uh, Pavo, did you want to talk about UC faculty? The, as, one as one fam- too? the one that I'm most familiar with is there's a canyon north of UCLA that has UCLA faculty housing that's a shared equity arrangement. And I do happen to know a colleague that's lived there for a long time and can't move because uh, their share of the equity isn't enough to afford a house anywhere else in the city of LA. So... I know someone. I know a, a true person stuck in one of he's, these. He's living this story. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do want to talk about nomenclature here for a minute. When I think of things like community land trusts, which are 
they're made permanently affordable by public subsidies that never get paid back. And with those, my understanding is that they're usually called limited equity homeownership programs. And this could just be my uh, misunderstanding. But the way they work is even when someone sells their home, they have to sell it at a below market price. But that initial subsidy is never paid back to the government or philanthropy or wherever it came from. To me, shared equity means that whoever gave you that money or discount to buy the home is eventually getting repaid, usually whenever they sell, the homeowner sells, and often they'll take a share of any appreciation on the property. And I, and I say whoever here, because even though we're talking about government subsidized programs in this study, there are these private companies doing similar deals. This might be a kind of nitpicky question, but do you agree with that distinction or do you see things differently? Maybe this is just the the fact that the shared equity kind of down payment assistance programs aren't as common elsewhere. And these are more government operated programs and, and even government built and operated housing in mm -hmm. most other countries. How do you distinguish between those two different approaches? I feel like there needs to be some kind of distinction between programs that give subsidies to a housing project and require that the homes stay affordable indefinitely, which is sort of like how community land trusts work, programs that give subsidies and let homeowners sell at market value eventually, but they require repayment of that subsidy. And so I think a lot of the international programs and these, these loan programs that I was talking about, for example, in San Francisco, that's how they work. And then there are programs that let homeowners sell at market value, but they don't require repayment. And I think those might be kind of rare, but I, I think they exist in some places. Wouldn't, so Wouldn't that just be like down payment assistance? I mean, if there's no sharing it's just sort of, of the equity. Yeah. Maybe I try to answer this first. Maybe, uh, Kelvin, you can supplement your idea as well. My response to Shane's question is, well, of course, it, it really depends. And um, when you ask us whether we see that differently, I, I think, in terms of down payment, we have a lot of ways to engineer that, that down payment reduction for, for the home buyer. But I would say in terms of the equity arrangement, one thing is about very important thing is how this subsidy in inform I mean in, in in the Hong Kong HOS case, because the government tried to build a house and they sell it at an initial price discount. Uh, that is basically the land premium of the those uh subsidized housing unit. And I would say that that kind of subsidy is more in kind relative mm -hmm. to those uh, down payment assistance scheme, they need to really pay out with cash. I mean, yeah. the major difference is about what is the form of that kind of subsidy. In terms of government uh, in, in Hong Kong, they are basically bear much lesser risk because when, when they just try to sell the home unit with a discount price, no matter what, the land is owned by the government. Mm -hmm. And they could scale up this kind of home ownership scheme with the land they own. Well, that is a major, major difference between the share equity arrangement in, in Hong Kong model and versus those down payment mortgage or whatever financial arrangement that Shane, yeah. you just mentioned. Yes, I, I also think, you know, the distinction mentioned by Shane is actually very uh, important uh, regarding a shared equity and limited equity. So I think conceptually, I think it is, you know, as simple as that, you know, if the government just, you know, give you money to, to buy a home and without expecting you to pay back anything, it is a kind of subsidy, it's a grant, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so that would be one arrangement. The second arrangement is that the government give you some money, but expecting you to pay some interest, which is a predetermined, you know, upfront, then that would be more like a loan arrangement. So the government give you a loan uh, to buy a home. And now I think what we are talking about is equity. So if we are talking about equity, then that would mean uh, when you resell the home, the government is expected to take uh, some, some share of the profits or all loss, you know, uh, mm -hmm. arising from the, from the resale. So that would be what we call the equity approach. But I think, you know, a deeper question that, you know, Shane asks is uh, what is the distinction between limited equity and uh, shared equity? I think that that's a very good question because I, I think this is also a, a, a question that we raised in, in the paper is uh, whether, you know, shared equity home ownership would eventually end up with limited equity home ownership if 
people are not equipped with uh, sufficient exit affordability and will never get pay, you know, pay back the subsidies. Right? And mm. that would become equivalent, right? When people do not move out, then they will always keep the subsidies without paying back. And that will be equivalent to a limited equity approach. In your study, you need a way to compare entry and exit affordability for these programs between countries, and you rely on the housing price to income ratio or PIR. And this is a basic measure where you take the median home price in a metro area or state or country and divide it by the median income for that same location. If the median home price is, say, $300,000 and the median income is $50,000, you have a ratio of 6 to 1 there. The price-income ratio is simple and easy to compare between different jurisdictions, but you also point out that it can obscure important differences based on taxation and welfare systems found in different countries. And I'll also note that places like Japan tend to have very high PIRs because they have very low interest rates by world standards. But when you look at what they actually spend on mortgages, they're much more affordable than the ratio makes them seem. And we can really feel that in the U.S. right now, where interest rates are very high, and that's reduced buying power by something like 30% over the past year. But that point aside, to address the shortcomings or some of the shortcomings with this ratio, you developed a modified version of the PIR that tries to take into account some of these differences between countries specifically the fact that buyers can usually purchase these homes at discounted prices and the income requirements usually limit eligibility to people earning less than the median income. So the price is lower than the national or local median, but so is the income of the home buyer. Starting with entry affordability, I'll pose this question in two ways. First, for the U.S., how does entry affordability for housing in these shared equity programs compare to housing on the private market? And then looking beyond the U.S., were there any interesting findings for the other countries that you want to draw our attention to? I think in responding to uh, Shane's question, first of all, I, I think I, I'm, I'm not really the expert of U.S. market, so I may not be able to answer how substantial of that discount or the initial upfront cost they can save with those share equity arrangements. But as I said, in, in, in the Hong Kong case, the HOS scheme basically can have the initial price discount up to 30 to 50% of the market rate. That's, mm-hmm. that's a huge amount that you can save from the upfront cost. And in your, I mean, you try to ask the question with the Japan case. I would like to emphasize that the PIR, the price to income uh, ratio that we try to invent in terms of those international comparison, we would like to emphasize that it should be a comparison of that ratio over time within a country that will try to indicate how the affordability change mm-hmm. uh, it, within that jurisdiction. That will be a more uh, com- comparable or like-with-like comparison uh, when it. we try to study the, those PIR. So it's not so much comparing you know, Hong Kong's PIR to the US PIR, it's comparing Hong Kong's PIR for like market housing to its shared equity program housing, but also then comparing its PIR for the shared equity program entry and for the exit. Yes. Got it. Um, I think that that's exactly the, the point. Uh, uh, I think our, our papers and methodology is uh, based on the premises that we cannot compare the PIR, the price to income ratio of different cities directly. I think that that's the premises. Um, so what we do is actually, uh, as uh, William said, we are actually, first of all, compare within a city over time. So that's number one. And the second thing we did is it's more like, you know, academically, we, we call that a difference in difference approach. So another thing we do is even within the same time period for one city, we compare the PIR of the private market mm-hmm. with the PIR of the subsidized market. So that's why we can look at the difference between the two at a particular point in time, and then we can see, oh, now the affordable housing market is, you know, maybe 5% better, you know, than the private market. Then now we move on to another time period, maybe where we have a housing boom. Then we look at the two again and see, you know, oh, whether the affordability gap between the two markets have improved or not. So that, that is, you know, how we conceive, you know, our methodology in the paper. Could you give us a sense for just ballpark, 
between different countries, you know, how big a discount these shared equity programs provide relative to market housing and how that discount on the entry affordability specifically changed over time during your, your, your 10 year study window? When we try to refer the paper, uh, there's a table try to show different uh, countries when, I mean, their entry and exit affordability, uh, like China, Hong Kong, Australia, UK, US, and Norway. And you can see that the initial purchase discount or that subsidy uh, of equity is basically ranging from 30% to 57%. Wow, Norway, 57%. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you can see in that table as well, you can get a sense that when they get exit affordability being calculated, you will see that Hong Kong is one of the most unaffordable ones when you compare with the private market. Or I can also give a sense of uh, another way to talk about the lumber, you know, mm-hmm. so because maybe the audience will be able to understand better what that means. Yeah. So, so William, I will first talk about energy affordability first, because I guess Ashan will talk about exit affordability later on, right? Right. So to answer Shan's uh, questions, I think, uh, yes, we can refer to the table in the paper. And actually what we use is the price to income ratio. So like, you know, taking Hong Kong as an example, uh, for the private housing market, the PIR is 18, meaning, you know, the housing price is 18 times yeah. of our annual income for a normal household in the private housing market. Which just to note is the highest or at least one of the highest in the entire world. Yes, yes, if we compare to with other cities. Other yes. developed and, countries, yeah. Right, right. And and then for the uh, shared equity home ownership program, so if we do the same, you know, PIR uh, in that uh, sector, uh, so basically the households paying, uh, the, the PIR is 17. So meaning the housing price of this in a subsidized home ownership program is 17 times of the annual income of these you know, subsidized households. So you can see 18, 17. So still, you know, we have some improvement of the affordability, <laughs> yeah. but it is not, not a great deal, right? So that, that's uh, what we saw from the pay, pay and that's yes. And that's despite having a 30 to 50% discount because the buyers just have much lower incomes than the median, Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so like the UK was the other, was maybe the biggest difference where, you know, the norm, the market one was uh, four and a half times somebody's income. And then the shared equity program was 1.2 times somebody's income. So the shared equity is a really, really good deal in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> and how about with uh, exit affordability? Just how did you calculate that? And what did the results look like for different countries? Well, we, we tried to do a, a simulation how those subsidized homeowner, if they need to repay back that initial purchase discount uh, to the government, how those price to income ratio looks like after the 10 years time window for those resales. I mean, with 10 years time, basically a lot of resale restriction will be lift. People can freely trade it on the market. And we mm-hmm. would like to simulate simulate a price that the homeowner need to repay back part of their equity or capital gain back to government. What will the price to income ratio looks like at that exit point? That is basically how the exit affordability being calculated in this uh, research work. And we, and we try to get that simulated PIR compare with the market. That is the way how we compare different figures. And how, what did the results look like in different countries for that exit affordability metric? I can talk about again about Hong Kong, right? We mentioned that 18, you know, is the average for the private housing. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, when we look at the simulation, you know, mentioned by William, you know, after 10 years living in subsidized housing, so will, will they be more affordable to exit to private housing or not? And, and the PIR we got is actually 24 Wow. <laughs> so meaning after you know living in the subsidized housing for ten years, they are, they are even less affordable. Uh, you know, if, if they really want to go to the private housing market. I, I think one reason for Hong Kong is very obvious. The housing price in Hong Kong has risen much faster than our income. Mm-hmm. So yeah, because it's a combination of that factor, kind of the housing price changes as well as how good of a deal how much sharing the program forces you to do, right? Yes. Did you consider looking at 
just assuming it was a grant, how would exit affordability look? And the reason I ask is because that 18 to 1 price income ratio that is existed at the, at the beginning for the market housing, that's assuming median income. But these households, you know, that came into the homes with below median incomes in, in Hong Kong, well below. And so if they're exiting with lower incomes as well, then of course, you know, they're, they're PIR, it's going to be hard for them to have a, a low mm-hmm. PIR. Even if they got all of the money from that sale and didn't have to pay back the government, like, what would it look like for them? Would they, would they still not have enough just because their incomes were too low? Or, you know, what's the situation there if you have any data on that or, or just kind of intuitions about it? We may not have the actual data to reflect that, but the conceptually, when you try to live in a subsidized home, home ownership, one thing that we need to point out is the homeowner actually can save a lot of rent when, when they cannot have that ownership. They need to rent elsewhere to live. Mm-hmm. But throughout the period, if they have home ownership assisted by the government and they are actually having some kind of conceptual subsidized rent for them to accumulate enough wealth uh, so that they can exit the program. That's why I would say when they try to exit the program, although the price is really uh, increasing dramatically in Hong Kong, but at the same time, I would like to point out there will be some saving from those expensive rental expenses uh, throughout the time period time, as we assume in this study. Yeah, I mean, even even if people have to go back to renting, they're probably walking away with quite a bit of wealth because they paid down the principal on on their mortgage and you know they're keeping whatever appreciation. It's better than not having been in the program. It's just you're not necessarily getting into kind of the next step. I want to pull a quote from your paper really quick and sort of interrogate it here. You say, quote, although the fundamental policy goal of shared equity homeownership programs is improving housing affordability, Many policy discussions that support subsidizing homeownership focus only on the improvement of entry affordability while ignoring the importance of exit affordability, which is the ability of subsidized homeowners to transition from subsidized housing to private housing, unquote. You follow that up a bit later by saying, quote, fundamentally, a well-functioning property ladder has to ensure both the entry and the exit affordability of households. Otherwise, the ladder will lead only to a trap, unquote. I have mixed feelings about this, and I guess where someone lands on it, like what position they take, will come down to whether they agree or disagree with the idea that the housing ladder necessarily needs to continue on up to private housing out of that subsidized housing market. On the one hand, if people can gain enough wealth, and and Pavo talked about this a little bit, if they can gain enough wealth to move into the private housing market and that's what they want to do, that's great. Assuming the subsidized housing that they've left behind remains affordable, then it's opening that rung on the ladder to another household, which is something I think we all want to see. But on the other hand, if under the existing limited equity structure, most people can't get to the point where they can exit to ownership on the private market, then it's hard to see how we solve that problem without giving those limited equity owners or shared equity owners a bigger windfall. So in other words, eliminating the requirement that they pay back the public subsidy. But if we do that, then that means that the subsidized home is going to be sold at market rate or something close to it, so it's no longer affordable. And in either situation, the household that first bought the subsidized home is the only real beneficiary, either because they stay in the same subsidized home forever or because they take the subsidy with them when they sell. And just, you know, it's their money now, basically. So this seems like the real challenge at the heart of your research and shared equity homeownership programs generally, and I do think it's a really important insight. I'd just like to hear a little more about how you think about the trade-offs between these two different approaches or, or goals of these programs. When, when I discuss this uh, research work with Calvin, we also see the trade-off among the limited equity and uh, shared equity approach. And we have a feeling or consensus that no policy is perfect. Uh, that's why there will be trade-off. And it is always referred as an impossibility welfare theorem. We, we cannot satisfy with all the people's need and, and, and concern. And I think for the shared equity approach, we can really share, uh, ensure an equitable access of public money for assisting those moderate income group to get access to home ownership. Uh, and why we, have, we should have this 
share equity approach because those are test players' money. Government is accountable to ensure that kind of resources are really allocated to those who are need uh, to access the home ownership. But it is very difficult to maintain the exit affordability for those subsidized, uh, in, in, in particular, in the share equity approach. Uh, people, people, if they cannot really go out or, or their moving decision is really hugely affected by the p- repayment back to government, it will create another layer of misallocation. As I mentioned, one of our previous research work that tried to study the misallocation of those subsidies in, in Hong Kong HOS market, basically, uh, those share equity approach also create a lot of mismatch. Uh, among the sector. Well, just imagine if you, you, you really get a job, uh, just using San Francisco as example, if you live in San Jose uh, or elsewhere, uh, but you get a job in Bay Area in San Francisco. If you're stuck in that kind of subsidized housing unit, you cannot move because you when you pay repay back the equity to government or any entity, mm-hmm. you are basically cannot afford to buy anywhere uh, in, in Bay Area. That's why you, you need to see how's the objective of the policy. Uh, what is the main objective of that kind of uh, share equity arrangement to decide whether it is better to use the share equity approach or limited equity approach? Uh, I think all I would like to add is uh, is that what uh, Shine mentioned is exactly what has been happening in Hong Kong. So um, Shine mentioned, you know, owners need a bigger windfall, so so that they have incentive to move out, right? And so exactly that was uh, what the Hong Kong government did a few years ago. So they waive uh, some of the you know subsidized homeowners requirement uh, to pay back the subsidy. So with that, you know, waiving waiver policy, so we we could see a lot more transactions, a lot more liquidity in in the home ownership uh, subsidized home ownership market. But the question is whether this is one off or not, right? So this time you give them a windfall, right? So now they are willing to move because they they do not have to pay back. But then for people who now move into the subsidized housing market, of course they now have to pay a higher price, as you said. And then what happened after another 10 years? Mm-hmm. So what, what if we want them to move out? But, but, and at that time, what kind of windfall can you give them or can you guarantee them? So it is still a question mark. So we, we do not know. So this is a, just a more recent policy. And so we might need more time to figure out you know, whether that could be sustainable or not. Yeah, it's almost like a good political strategy, though. You can, you can pretend it's a shared equity program. <laughs> then t- 10 years later, you just actually turned it into a, to a grant program, effectively. Um, the other point I was going to make is I wonder in within the HOS system in Hong Kong, it's like 20% of the housing units in Hong Kong, something like that. Can you buy and sell within that system without taking a hit in the equity? Because you could imagine a, a kind of a parallel shared equity stock that could have mobility, you know, you get a job in a different city, but you can sell within the system if there's units available um, within within the shared equity stock there, right? And so sort of like trading flats or buying and selling flats uh, without kind of taking the equity out of the system. Well, unfortunately, in Hong Kong, as far as I know, uh, there's no such flexibility. Mm. But people have always been talking about it. It's not so much about accessibility because Hong Kong, is, as I said, is a very small right. city. It really it still takes not, a long a time deal. to get from <laughs> Sha Tin to yeah. Hong Kong. But that's a, the emotional hurdle, I think. You know, even though right. you know Hong Kong Island and Kowloon is just a five minutes away, people think this is very long. <laughs> this is right, a long trip. Right. People adapt. Yeah. <laughs> but but then uh, I think that the other issue about, you know, it's not about accessibility, but it's more about, you know, either upsizing or downsizing your right, home because right. of the, you know, the, our life cycle consumption requirement. Yeah. So, for example, when people get older, maybe their, you know, uh, children have moved out, then they do not need such a big home. Then, but mm-hmm. now there is no kind of, you know, internal mechanism for these, you know, older people to, or maybe I can uh, exchange my bigger home uh, with a smaller one and right. then, you know, get, you know, get some cash back. I think there's no such uh, arrangement, but I think that would be, you know, very, you know, necessary mm-hmm. if we want to reduce the inefficiencies in the current you know, subsidized system. Yeah. So you need a, you need a big enough stock to make it, to make it flexible, but then it's like creating a whole parallel housing market that yes. may be more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't also just mention that 
you know, part of the problem here is that we're trying to use housing as a way to build wealth in the first place. And <laughs> the way that that is done is by making it more expensive for the next buyer um, yeah. in real terms, which you can't keep doing forever. There's a there's an upper limit where that just stops working. And it means that every time the government supports a household to buy their home, it's going to be more expensive. And again, there's upper limits on that as well. So I don't think we have to dwell on that, but it's, it's just worth mentioning that this is somewhat of an unsolvable problem so long as prices keep rising, like these, these trade-offs are inherent. But with that said, uh, coming to a close, just thinking about reforms to at least improve on these programs, it seems like any reform that could be suggested is going to involve benefits for some people and costs to others, even if that's you know just the government writ large. Under the current structure in most countries, the subsidy stays with the house or has to be paid back, which negatively impacts exit affordability. But if you let homebuyers keep more of the subsidy, then that leaves less funding to support other people in the future, which means reduced entry affordability. You do propose a tweak to shared equity ownership programs, which you describe as, quote, unbundling the deadlock between the right to live in a subsidized home and the right to enjoy a housing subsidy. Could you say a bit about that proposal and how you think it would help? Maybe I can start first and then Kelvin can add uh, more. We try to advocate a way that is try to let the people carry the in-kind subsidies uh, to buy the housing unit in private market. Basically, they are still subsidized by the government with that subsidy, but that is the way how to maintain that subsidies uh, still being some public taxpayers' money. While on the other hand, it still uh, subsidizes some people who are really want to move out from or exit the share equity program. They can still allow to have uh, the budget to buy the private housing unit in the private housing market like uh, pay as you go for, for, for those subsidies in the private housing market. Uh, and it will be more sustainable, in particular when you mention how the public resources being allocated efficiently. Right. So uh, maybe another way to put it uh, is uh, because I, I, I know that maybe the U.S. audience is more familiar with housing vouchers. Um, mm -hmm. so, so in a way, the idea is very similar. So sub imagine that you, know, you are now a subsidized homeowner, you know, living in that sector for 10 years. Now you're going to move on to the private sector. And one of the hurdles that we have uh, mentioned in our conversation is, is that, oh, we have to repay the government. And so we are not able to afford private housing. So what can we do? So that would mean now you know, we kind of you know, suggest that uh, instead of repaying the government, his you know, fair share of equity, what the homeowner will get when they resell the property is, is a housing voucher. So that means instead of repaying the amount of money you know, to the government, you are holding a voucher. So meaning that when you go onto the private market, of course, you have your own capital. And then on the other hand, you also have the housing voucher to help you, support you to move on to the private housing market. So that, that is basically you know, what William said as the pay-as-you-go idea. That's interesting. So it's, but it's not the case that the government would then own some equity in the next house you buy. Is that how you're thinking about it? That is something we uh, keep open. I think maybe when when that person will sell the private housing, maybe after right. ten years, then yes, I think yeah. the government could, you know, also get a share of that appreciation. Kind of like a lien on your next house. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. That would be bad for the bank of mom and dad, though, because then the kids <laughs> won't get that money. <laughs> bank of mom and dad often has very generous terms. <laughs> All right, Kelvin Wong and William Chung, thank you so much for joining us on the Housing Voice podcast. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having us. You can read more about William and Kelvin's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips and Pavo is at L. Pavo. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.